0: Well, Laura, thank you very much for inviting me to be the moderator today. Uh, I love software like Airbase that helps make a CFO's team more effective and efficient. So when Laura and Tejo uh, invited me to first be an advisor to the company and then to host this uh, interview series, I just jumped at the chance. And my first guest is my friend Ship Shipchandler. If you could change the slide. Kazama is the chief financial officer of Twilio where I serve as the chair of the audit committee. And as many of you know, the relationship between a CFO and Audit Committee Chair is a very special relationship, and we've known each other for many years, and I'm delighted to welcome you today, Kozema.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It's my pleasure to be here,
0: and it's great to see you. So Kozema started his career uh, at General Electric, and I'd like to start off right in with a dramatic uh, time in your career at GE. You were there for 18 years, but perhaps the most dramatic time was when you acquired an aerospace company, and it didn't quite go as planned. So tell, set it up, tell us the backstory, and then tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, I was actually at uh, GE for 22 years, just Yeah, oh, uh, okay. you know, out of that. So, um, you know, basically the setup is this, is that uh, I was relatively early in my career, Jeff, and I was about 33 years old and was kind of thrust into like one of these interesting situations that happened a lot at GE, actually, where... I was told to become the CFO of a company that we just bought and you know we at GE were an aircraft engine manufacturer and we decided to kind of broaden our space into another aspect of the airplane we wanted to buy a landing gear and avionics company we thought all of that would have tremendous synergy in terms of revenue and stuff like that and it was just like one of these situations where we dramatically underestimated the level of integration effort. I think we dramatically overestimated the level of revenue synergy. And when we bought the company, we realized that there were a number of other really, really significant problems that actually ranged from significant cultural issues all the way through to, you know, significant performance issues uh, with that organization. And so you know, the long and short of it is, is that after about a year, uh, we had a change in CEO. Uh, the, the, the individual that I was working for previously was just a, a, a tough person and I think did not necessarily have the best intentions of the combined organization in mind. And so we brought in a new leader and bringing in a new leader, I think we quickly realized that, I mean, I'd realized it for some time, but I, I give her credit Taking action immediately, that we had to do a very significant restructuring of the company. The company that we're talking about was about uh, 13,000 people, and we ended up restructuring out about 2,000 people, um, which is obviously a very significant undertaking across the US, Europe. Europe's a lot more complicated when it comes to restructuring activity, as you have to work through the unions and works councils, what have you. And um, it was just a very very difficult thing and one that was one of the, my first experiences or brushes with uh, a, a situation like that um the cultural challenges i'd seen before the restructuring challenges i mean i just had and that was so early in my career and um ultimately we did make that company better but it was a lot of hard work and and i think i mentioned this to you once too that there were a number of instances going through that restructuring process where i even received some very unpleasant things, shall we say, in my home mailbox and you know, even felt you know, certain threats to my own safety and my family's safety, uh, which was a really difficult thing to go through, but a, a very formative experience for me, Jeff.
0: Uh, how dramatic. You, there was a, a, a moment early in that process you told me about where the CEO met with you privately and said, what are we going to do about this? Can you just tell that story of what, what it was like that day? And did you know that was coming? Was it a surprise to you?
1: yeah so this was the new uh ceo that came in and she came into my office about eight in the morning and she said you know i heard you have a lot of strong opinions about what we should do i'd I'd love to hear them and she left at around seven or eight o'clock that night basically um we went all the way through we ordered pizza for lunch uh, we ordered some things for dinner and um you know she heard me out and what happened was She came back the very next day and said, okay, we're going to do everything that you just said uh, the prior day, uh, with one exception, which was that she wanted to retain a certain person. And she said, but I'd like you to be the restructuring manager um, and for you to lead us through this effort. And so, you know, I took another 24 hours and I said, okay, let me think about it. And, um, you know, you've given me a lot to think about, and I came back the next day, and and what I asked for was, I said, okay, I'll 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 do what you asked, but I have two asks of my own. One is is that I'd like to be able to have your conference room and put a new lock and key on the door, and and the reason for that was not vanity; it was just we wanted to use that as our war room, um, you know, to be able to manage this process. And the other one was that I could pick. You know the general counsel and the supply chain leader who would really end up bearing a heavy load in this process, and take those individuals off of her staff and as a part of this team. And uh, you know she's really supportive and and a great teammate and going through this process. And I learned a lot from her as well about it, what what it meant to be a leader during that time.
0: So, in addition to your CFO role, you created sort of a separate restructuring team.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so I continue to be the CFO of the business. I'm sorry, I continue to see about the business and around the restructuring and how many people on the restructuring team, you know, we had about, uh, 15 dedicated. And then obviously there were a number and there were mostly HR legal and then supply chain leaders, because a lot of it was factory restructuring. Um, but you know, that obviously it impacted effectively every single person in the organization because we had to do a, you know, take out 2000 people like we did, it's going to impact every organization
0: now. Outsiders might think of a CFO as basically someone who closes the books and does the accounting. But if you start at 8 AM and you went to 9 PM, it sounds like you were doing things that were far beyond accounting and closing the books and maybe even beyond what a normal CFO role might be. What, how, involved, how involved were you in all other aspects of the business? And, and what was that like where a leader was looking to you not just for your accounting hat, maybe not even just your CFO hat, but a broader, broader role?
1: It was incredibly intellectually stimulating, Jeff. And and honestly, I mean, a lot of fun. I mean, it's not fun, obviously, to go through a restructuring like that per se, but I think to just go through a learning experience like that is is really incredible. And, you know, the part of it was the way that that company, GE, grew finance leaders was really to be strong operating leaders. And and obviously, you know, like yourself, you've been in a, a variety of really interesting roles, like you have opinions, you know, about things, whether it's the operations of the business or the strategy of the company. And, you know, like yourself, like I'm a very avid student of business and I like to read a lot and consume a lot and then form my own ideas and opinions. And it's a lot more fun, I would say, when you can share them with somebody else and 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 they take that seriously. And I think, you know, for me and, and a large part of my experience growing up in that company was that, as long as you had a point of view and were willing to do the work, those opportunities were given to you. And you know, I've been lucky even at Twilio in my relationship with Jeff Lawson that he's given me many of those same opportunities and I found it really rewarding.
0: Well, it sounds like there were some surprises along the way. And I've always said a, an important job for the CFO is no surprises. Uh, years ago, I, I would say, well, let's do a postmortem after something like that and say you know, what happened. And a friend of mine said, you know, post-mortem is sort of the glass is half empty. Let's call it lessons learned. So yeah. ever since then, I've always said, let's use the phrase lessons learned. So what are your lessons learned from that entire experience, starting from the time you were negotiating to buy it? I mean, should you not have bought it to begin with? Them?
1: I think there were, well, I, I think we should not have bought it with with the benefit of hindsight. But I, I think there were three big lessons in, in retrospect. I think the first is that, Never underestimate the culture integration. And what was particularly unique in this set of circumstances was you have to understand that in the GE aircraft engine business, there are only two competitors. You know, one of whom is Rolls Royce, the other of whom is Pratt and Whitney. And virtually the entire management team that we were buying um, as a result of this deal was ex Rolls Royce. And you know, those are two cultures and companies that are effectively bred to hate each other. And so now all of a sudden you're thrust together and told to work together every day. And that's just like really hard. And honestly, Jeff, that was just the first layer of the cultural complexity here. You had some, you had some kind of UK, US dynamics. They had done a bunch of acquisitions themselves. And so you had effectively four or five different companies within this broader company. You had some kind of age dynamics, gender dynamics, diversity. I mean, it was everything that you could have imagined was there. And I think you know, companies pay a lot closer attention, I think these days, to what are the implications of a cultural integration. And I think that was one we should have taken much more seriously in that regard. I think the second was when you buy something, even if it's adjacent, if it's out of your kind of sweet spot in terms of what you do, how you go to market and how you sell, you really better understand the financial model and what the inherent risks are and you know again we were used to selling to the airlines and 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 there was a confined set of risks in doing so and all of a sudden we were thrust in the position of selling to the airframers with effectively unlimited change order contracts and that puts you in a pretty tough spot when it comes to cost if you don't underwrite the plan appropriately. and you know again, it was just like a totally new business model for us and I think we should have asked better questions um, on the way in. And then I think that you know the, the, the third thing is is that be very wary when you're looking at things that are effectively outside of your core competency. You know there are just things that companies do well and there are things that seem alluring, you know, because they add revenue or they seem additive in terms of the value that you can add to a customer. But it just didn't. I mean, again, our customer, we knew very clearly was airlines. And all of a sudden, we effectively created a new com- uh, customer with these airframers, And it just wasn't additive to what we were trying to do. In fact, it turned out to be you know, revenue growth destructive, dilutive. And um, you know, again, if you could do it all over again, you wouldn't have done it. But those are kind of three big lessons I would learn that I think are broadly applicable to any acquisition, frankly, at any company.
0: So three lessons, understand the cultural issues, understand the financial model, and be wary moving outside of your core competency. Very important lessons learned. So let's go back now, uh, talk about your career. Uh, where did you grow up? How did you get involved in finance?
1: You know, I was uh, born in the thriving metropolis of Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, I was born and raised there, a uh, great Midwestern city, uh, very, very proud to be a, a Hoosier, uh, you know, really have deep Indiana roots and, and you know, have a brother that still lives there. Uh, I went to Indiana University. That uh, was, was a little bit unplanned, but um, turned out to be a great experience for me. And to be honest, I didn't really imagine a, a career in finance at that point in time. I always imagined a career in business potentially, but not necessarily a career in, in finance, Jeff. And, you know, the way that it played out was basically like this is my parents really wanted me to go to medical school in which I had no interest. I really wanted to go to law school in which basically they had no interest. And so we kind of split the diff, if you will, and I took a job. And, you know, at the time, it, it was kind of hard to get a job as a non-business major. You know, I was a double major in uh, biology and English and and an economics minor. And I really leaned heavily into my economics minor. And uh, at the time, you know, GE was one of the world's most admired companies. And that's about all I knew. And I wasn't, like the business school students, I wasn't reading the Wall Street Journal every day or subscribing to Fortune Magazine necessarily at the time. And, you know, I took what I believed to be the first great job that, uh, that, that came at me. I had some other offers, but it, it seemed really interesting. To join GE, and I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: And you joined GE in the internal audit pro- training program from the beginning. I, I
1: joined in one of the um, entry level training programs. It was the financial management program, and uh, really well known in uh, in corporate business. And then from there, I joined what's kind of an even higher bar to join, which is our internal audit program. And you know, years later, even ran. Our internal audit program, which was definitely one of the formative experiences of my career.
0: So that internal audit program is one of the most famous financial training programs in the world. It's just got it's it's an academy kind of company where the people who come out of that are have fantastic jobs like yours all over all over industrial America and corporate America. Well, could you just describe a little bit? Of, I think of it as a, of a financial Marine Corps. But can you? I don't know if that's accurate or not. Can you tell us what that program is like? What it's like to be in it, and what it's like to lead it?
1: yeah, it was it was really intense and and really fun, basically. Um, you know the way that it worked was is that we worked in a trimester format. and so every four months, you were given a different assignment. But you weren't just given a different assignment. It, if you were doing a financial audit, let's say in the first trimester, for certain in the second trimester, you would not be doing that the second time around. You would be doing acquisition integration or you might be doing advisory work on a pricing project, let's say, or on a supply chain audit of some sort. Uh, you would be thrust into a different geography as well as a different business and, and, and working with entirely different people as well as a different manager. And so basically the idea was in four month bursts, how do we change every variable that was present in the first four months and then change it again in that third four months so that the individuals that participated in the program became deeply familiar, if you will, with ambiguity and were able to to get results in a highly ambiguous environment, um, and be able to make a difference um, by, on the one hand, doing the work, on the other hand, packaging the information for executives, and then finally, you know, just there's a certain uh, fortitude or grit, if you will, that you develop in going through experiences like that. And you know, I'd say the hours were they were challenging. I mean, it, you know, you're talking about eighty to one hundred hours a week. Um, Minimum, And, you know, in some of the harder assignments, it could be even a little little bit longer than that, but just incredibly, incredibly rewarding. You know, like some other environments, it was not a shark pit. Um, It was very collaborative. Um, You were always there providing feedback to one another, learning from one another. Uh, You were always there kind of trying to trumpet the accomplishments of your peers and help them climb in their own careers. When I look at you know many of my friends that participated in that program today, many of them are CFOs at, at, at public companies today, uh, and we still talk to each other you know in in some ways as much as we did and in 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 the same way that we did even even back then, sharing best practices and and advice, and it was it was really formative and really awesome. The only difference running it was that uh, you're aging while the average cohort is always staying the same age. And so you derive energy from that, right? Because the average age of the participant is 27, because it's very much a sort of upper out uh, style program, but not uh, in a, in a, you're out of the thing. It, it was, you get, you get promoted into some great job elsewhere in the company. Um, and, you know, seeing so many young people come through and with such veracity, you would just get a lot of energy from that. And, and I certainly was a beneficiary of that. And you know, it, it really piqued my interest, honestly, in technology and analytics, and you know things like data science and, and machine learning, and how those practices can actually be applied to finance, uh, which is where I learned a lot when I was running it. So,
0: the the people who didn't stay in internal audit would rotate through for how long, typically?
1: So, you you were required to do it for two years, okay, and then yeah. after that, there was a promotional kind of triangle structure. And you talked about how they changed.
0: Uh, different types of work, but were they also moving geographically
1: every four months, both in yeah. the US and internationally? And so that's pretty disruptive on your family life, right? It could be, it could be. And um, you know, some folks would uh, travel, you know, with the with their spouses that that happened from time to time, or their partners. Uh, others would find that it would really solidify a relationship. But yeah, I mean, it, it was tough. And and you know, as I went through it, I experienced a lot of that. I was. You know, married, and uh, uh, it, it can be difficult, but it can also strengthen a relationship, and I think that's what happened with me.
0: We talked about how you were collaborative within the internal audit department, but I imagine if I'm the CEO of one of the business units and someone from headquarters internal audit comes and asks a lot of questions and tells me how to do things better, I might not be completely receptive all the time. Uh, how how did you? What was the range of collaboration or conflict with your? Clients essentially with the the CEOs of the companies you were working with.
1: Believe it or not, on a scale of ten, if with ten being the most collaborative, it was at least an eight or nine. Wow. And and the reason being that it was viewed as a talent engine for these businesses, right? And so some in some many ways, the CEOs and CFOs and other you know uh, members of the leadership team were evaluating you, you know, as a prospect that could join. The organization at some point down the road, and so the only thing they really wanted was was high impact work, and you know from time to time you might have a a client that was a little bit more uh, hostile, if you will, but that was really the exception. I, I think in my you know five and a half years or so when I was on the program, uh, I think there was only one instance, one four month period where I had a hostile client. Yeah, that was tough. But for every other experience, it was really collaborative, even though you were often delivering bad news. Believe it or not.
0: So sometimes the CEO, it was almost like a four-month job interview, uh, for.
1: Yeah, in a, in a in a in a sense, and um, you know, again, I think people were so bought into the program and the talent that it generated that the CEOs and CFOs really viewed it as an opportunity for them to learn some things uh, about their business that they might not have otherwise have, have known.
0: Now, after that, you were promoted about every two years in all these different roles. What's it like to work for the same company, but have different roles in different business units and different geographies?
1: You know, I'd say, Jeff, it was it was equally exhilarating. You know, I think it's harder when you have a family. okay. but I think for a period of time, I mean, just to put it in perspective, after I graduated from college, I think I lived in 11 different places. Okay. And, and with that came a different job assignment basically every time. And you become very adaptable, very resilient. You learn to kind of make friends very quickly, learn to fit into different areas very quickly. Um, And at the same time, it's sort of a two-year version of what I described on the internal audit program, right? If you're being thrust into a new business dynamic or a new geography, you know, you got to learn on your feet very, very quickly. And you learn how to make an impact and make a difference uh, very quickly as well. You know, it has some downsides, which, which we can talk about if you'd like, but You know, give you I'll give you a great example. I mean, I was in our aviation business for about seven years, which is about the longest I'd been in any one business. And I did four different jobs when I was there. And all of a sudden, I get a call in January of 2011 to fly out to the Middle East. uh, This is right in the height of the uh, Arab Spring, and uh, take a job assignment there at a totally undefined thing that was recently being formed. At GE, there was a big push to do international expansion, and honestly, I mean, I jumped at it. You know, it was a it was a sort of unstable environment, if you will, in some respects. Now, I lived in Dubai, so I was pretty cloistered from a lot of that. But I mean, I, that was a discussion with the family, obviously, right? Because picking up and leaving Cincinnati, Ohio, for Dubai is not the easiest move necessarily. But you know, it turned out to be one of uh, the most rich and rewarding experiences of both my professional and, and personal life. I'd say the one downside with that sort of a dynamic is, is that sometimes you don't see your decision all the way through, you know, and in a lot of those businesses at GE, they're very long cycle businesses where the impact of your decision actually isn't felt for like another potentially seven, 10, even 15 years because of the long cycles of the products. I think in software, you see it a lot faster, obviously, but, um, I think there is benefit to seeing some of these things through at times.
0: Yeah, that's, that's incredible background. So a lot of people on this, or some people on the call here today are chief financial officers, and many others would like to be chief financial officers. So when you started out at started out GE, you were in the finance department, but you weren't a CFO, and then at some point right. you got tapped, and they said, we'd like you to be CFO. Tell us, what was your job right before you were CFO, and then what was it, how did that set you up to be eligible to become a CFO for the first time?
1: Yeah, the crucial experience that I had was financial planning and analysis, and I think if you know a lot of people, times people say that finance is the language of business, well, if that's true, then I would say that FP&A is the language of of finance, and I think a, a strong FP&A leader, and I'm lucky to have one at Twilio, for example, um, has a really really keen understanding not just of how the financial statements fit together, but also in particular what are the levers that you can push and pull to improve business performance and i think a particularly astute finance leader will not just use the fpna job as a means to do quite literally financial planning and analysis but also use it as a mechanism to inform strategy inform product investments big business decisions and even MA. and you know i was lucky in that i had really fabulous mentors um, you know, when I was in the FPA job that I took right off of uh, internal audit, and had I not had that experience, had I not had great mentors at the time, I definitely wouldn't be sitting where I am today. And um, you know, I was lucky to to get that experience early.
0: Can you talk more about the mentors? Did you ask for them? Did they reach out to you? How did how did that relationship start? And what did they do as a mentor?
1: Yeah, I, I just got kind of lucky. Um, you know, the, the the two mentors that were really impactful to me at the time uh, were uh, two gentlemen named uh, Dave Calhoun and Brian West. They're now the CEO and CFO at, at, at Boeing, actually. And um, they just took an interest, you know? I mean, it was just like a very simple thing, if you will, in that one day, Dave, who was the, the, the CEO of the aviation business then said after a, one of these meetings that we talked about earlier, like. It must be t- tough giving these folks bad news there was a lot of bad news in that particular meeting and he just said hey would you mind joining me in my office for lunch and we just kind of got to talking and he said okay well you know whenever this ends like i definitely want you to come work here in my business and you just get lucky sometimes right and 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 i did then and i all i would say about it is really when the luck happens you should be ready for it you know and uh and so i kind of seized the opportunity and then brian was the CFO of aviation ultimately when I joined and really, really tough boss, you know, very, very demanding, uh, but also quite a human being and, you know, really encouraged me to kind of find balance, even though the hours were long to ensure that I balanced that with, you know, interests outside of the office as well. And, um, you know, I was just lucky in, in getting the two of them so one really kind of took it upon himself to be a formal mentor and the other one became an informal mentor and then sort of a formal mentor uh, down the road
0: so you're running FPA for one of these businesses and then did someone just call you up out of the blue and say want to be CFO what, what happened next
1: yeah I mean basically what happened was I was I was working for Brian uh, at the time and uh, a, a spot opened up in our military engine business and he said love for you to be the CFO of this business and uh, that was basically the end of it, you know, and and there I was like all of a sudden learning about government contract accounting and, uh, you know, how to uh, uh, sign, you know, very long live contracts with the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense.
0: Well, that's a terrific uh, GE story. Let's turn now to Twilio. So you're you're at GE, Twilio reaches out and uh, I'm, I was involved in recruiting you to Twilio as a public company CFO. So this is the first time you're a public company CFO. Right. What was that transition like? How did you think about what you wanted to accomplish the first 90 or 180 days at Twilio as a CFO?
1: Yeah, you know, I think there's there were two dynamics to it. So I think the one dynamic was, you know, a lot of people have asked me this question, like, man, it must have been so different leaving a, a sort of very large company like GE and then moving into Twilio. And I actually found that to be not a large transition in, in many respects, Jeff, I think because... The finance language is very common, you know, the metrics are different, obviously the people are different, the products are different, but. I think the language of, of business is the same in many respects, and so I found that tr- transition to be quite easy, And I just found that the people of Twilio to be incredibly helpful and humble and, and welcoming. I think that the biggest thing that I spent time on and I certainly made you know my fair share of missteps was investor relations. You know, it's the one experience that if you've never been in a public setting or never done the IR job, you just don't have. And, um, you know, I I knew that for areas like tax and treasury, I'd be okay because I would hire experts, you know, and, and those tend to be very high expertise jobs. And as long as you know which questions to ask, I think you're okay. But investor relations, until you're faced with, you know, buy side investors who own your company and you're on the firing line, like you really don't know what that experience is like. And when they really bore in on the metrics and you realize in that one moment that you don't know the answer to that one question that they really want to know the answer to, you just don't know what that experience is like. And I, I would I would also say, you know, there's like a certain, you and I've talked about this a lot in the past, like there's just like a certain language to IR that's quite different than just normal business language, if you will, or even you know, normal uh, day-to-day language, and you have to learn it. And, uh, you know, I had a very good teacher um, who was our IR leader at the time, and we've since promoted him to another great job, but he was very patient and very blunt with feedback sometimes. And there was one particular misstep that I made that I wish I could have back, but, you know, you learn and grow from these experiences and you get better. And uh, I'd say that was the one area, Jeff, where I spent a lot of time the, the, the only other area where I did spend time, but I knew that I would get it was, obviously you wanna to prove to your CEO that you're not just a numbers guy, that you have an intuitive sense of the business model and that you can actually help drive the business forward versus just count what happened in the prior period. And so I did spend a fair amount of my time on some combination of product and strategy and I felt like the only way to do that was basically to go get lunch or dinner with every go-to-market and product leader that was willing. And again, you know, the, the Twilio community was just very generous with their time. And, and I was able to get a lot of that out of that and hopefully give something back to them too. Um, and I just found it really beneficial.
0: Something you mentioned resonated with my own experience, which is early in your career, you're learning from your, your superiors, your managers, Uh, later on, as you get more responsibility, it sounds like you actually were learning from your subordinates in investor relations or tax or treasury where they were teaching you how to do it in a way. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, I think that's totally right. And and I think, you know, one of the things that you have to be quite humble about and very self-aware about is, is that it's okay to have people on your team that are just fundamentally better at you than at a variety of skills. Because it's impossible. I mean, how could any person be great at literally every single thing? I mean, there's like probably five people in the world that are like that, right? And and you you really lean into and rely on the expertise of individuals, one. And two, I would say, if if you're doing everything, it doesn't create an opportunity for anybody else. I mean, they, they want to live their hopes and dreams too. And they want to be able to step up when given an opportunity. And, and I think it's mutually beneficial actually to do it that way. When
0: you started Twilio, it sounds like one of the things you wanted to do is build relationships with your peers in go-to-market and and product. How did you think about the relationship with Jeff Lawson, the CEO? What was your plan to strengthen that relationship?
1: You know, I I think that um, from my perspective, and I've treated it mostly the same way in every uh, CEO dynamic I've had, I think you want to, on the one hand, develop a personal relationship, and then, of course, you want to develop a professional relationship. And the way that I thought about it was, is that I wanted to be not his CFO, but a trusted advisor. And and how was the way in which I could sort of instantiate that that model? And so, obviously, I started from a position of where I thought I would have strength, i.e. finance, and better help him understand just the economics of the business and what the financials were telling us. And in particular, how are ways that we could grow and invest to generate additional future growth? I certainly asked you a lot of questions and and asked for advice in in many of those instances, and you were incredibly helpful to me. Um, And I certainly count you as a mentor now. but I think in, in the early days, like that's where I initially spent a lot of my time. And then as I gained confidence and learned more about go to market or product or strategy, you know, I started to pivot more of my time to Corp Dev, for example, as an area where I thought we could drive additional value and you know create create value for the company and would start to, you know, seed those ideas with him. I think the other thing was I was never really shy about sharing my opinions, you know, good, bad, or ugly uh, uh, about various things. I always do it, of course, in a, in a respectful fashion and, and make sure that he understood my only real motive was, you know, the betterment of, of Twilio. But I think in the course of that dialogue, what he also saw was that, hey, maybe this guy's like switched on to a number of other areas where I can give him additional responsibility. And I think that continuous back and forth is what led us here. I I would also say, back to the personal dynamic, I wouldn't undervalue the basics of grabbing lunch or dinner or a beer, because I I think it does take the temperature down sometimes when you have to have, if there's personal dynamics there, when you have to have a tougher professional conversation. And I think uh, that's the way it's kind of played out with Jeff and I. And we have a really, really close relationship today, I think.
0: How do you think about the cadence of uh, communication and meetings, either with your team, your direct reports, or you and your peers, or or you and the CEO? Was there a regularly scheduled meeting? Do you have one-on-ones? Do you have group meetings? Was it pre-COVID, and then how has it worked during COVID?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you a funny story, actually. So when I first joined Twilio, um, there were, I think, no less than eight hours of management meetings a week. And I think we did four to six hours on Monday and then four to six hours on Thursday. And I think this was my second or third month at Twilio. And I just said to Jeff, I said, I, there's no way by all of us spending a day together, we're advancing the ball and I am not going to attend the Thursday meeting anymore. (laughs) And he was like, well, I guess you're not really getting anything out of it. And I said, no, I don't know how anyone's getting anything out of it. (laughs) Like, I think we should cancel it for everybody. were people doing their email
0: during the meetings and everything?
1: There was a little bit of that, but you know, you want to pay attention, right? There's like topics being discussed and it was all well-intentioned, of course, right? It wasn't just like pure time waste, but I said, I'm not going. That I just need you to know that. And so, of course, the next week it wasn't scheduled and then, you know, that was taken off. And I think over time, we do a weekly meeting with our executive team. I think we've honed it where we've got it down to topics that matter versus just filling the space. I think um, you know Jeff even uh, has taken a step back from some of those and has let us kind of run those uh, ourselves to some degree, and and I certainly participate a lot in that process. Um, and then with respect to Jeff and I, you know, we do a biweekly uh, meeting. Um, I mean, obviously, in a week we'll probably talk every day at some level, um, you know, we'll talk a number of nights in a week too, sometimes on weekends. I think that's just the dynamic, you know, that exists with senior executives and, and their CEO. And I think we found the right model um, as a result of all of that.
0: And what about you and your team?
1: Go my ahead. staff, you mean? Yeah, your staff. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, my staff is like sort of a, it's a hodgepodge of, of different functions. And so, you know, in which is to say, I have finance and accounting over here, and IT over here, cybersecurity over here. So, I do fewer meetings actually because I find there to be less of a common thread that runs through every organization. So, that, cybersecurity oh, being in a
0: meeting about accounting pop, revenue recognition, right? Revenue. Right,
1: doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. And so, I'll do topical things with the team day to day. And then once a month I'll run a staff meeting, but by and large, I try to let the teams run themselves. I mean, I'll do a QBR that I'm quite deliberate about. And I do wanna see metrics of performance and stuff like that. QBR, uh, quarter,
0: a, quarterly business review. Quarterly
1: business review. And, and I ask for an MBR, which is more of a flyby on metrics.
0: Okay.
1: Um, What's that stand for, is that monthly or metric? Monthly, monthly, yeah. But it's, it's re- literally just metrics collection. It's not uh, as much time consumption in that way. And, and we try to use things that matter to the individuals creating the documents uh, versus just like vanity stuff for me. And um, otherwise, I try to let the teams run themselves and, and do it in a more de- decentralized fashion, actually.
0: And for these quarterly business reviews, how long are they?
1: It depends on the uh, organization. But let's say for FP&A, we do, we do an hour okay. you know, in a, in a QBR. For cybersecurity, we do an hour. Now, of course, I'm in regular dialogue with each of those teams, right? And especially if something comes up, you know, as you know, there's been a lot happening in ransomware lately, and we've had a number of discussions with the board too about that. But ransomware is a topic I've spent pretty much every day on over the last, you know, several weeks, given some of the things that have happened in the broader environment. But uh, otherwise, yeah. Right. So, as you think about Twilio
0: today, what's what's some of your top or what's your top priority right now? If you can talk about it, your top non-confidential priority. <laughs> <laughs> sure.
1: I, I think that um, you know it's probably the same as it what it is for a lot of uh, high growth technology companies at, in our vintage at least, you know. So we had this incredible, incredible innovation that Jeff came up with, and then it just caught lightning, and so we've been growing like crazy, and we've been you know fortunate to be beneficiaries of kind of broader dynamics around digital transformation, and so you know the the. What I literally say to Jeff a lot is, is that we have a really, really good company. Now, the difference between having a really good company and being an actual great company is really about execution. And what are the things from an operational execution perspective that we absolutely need to nail at our size today so that when we imagine ourselves to be multiple billions larger down the road, that... It's just easy to do business with us, it's easy for employees to work here, and it's easy for us to just run the business day to day versus sometimes it feels like we're all making like diving catches. And I spend a lot of my time on just the basic operations of that and how we master making the easy things actually be easy and allow us to spend time on the hard problems because I think that's really where the attention should be. I think instead, it's a little bit flipped, where we spend a lot of time on what should be easy, and we don't spend as much time as we really should on on the hard things. And I think we have an opportunity there. And again, I don't think we're unique. These aren't unsolvable problems or anything like that. They're highly solvable, um, but we've got to get after it. And so I spend a lot of my time on that.
0: What part of your job do you enjoy the most?
1: I think the part that I enjoy most is working with the team. You know, the, the way that I view it, I, the way that I viewed any job, honestly, is it's a partnership with other team members to create something great. And um, I, I know this is gonna sound trite or cliche, but like, I, I really, I, I view us as helping the broader Twilio team win every day. You know, I, I view that as my job. I view that as my team's job. Frankly, I view that as every one of my peers jobs, you know, Jeff Lawson is, is uh, you know, one of the co-founders and the CEO, but he's just a person, you know, running a, a company that's done pretty well over a period of time, but it's up to all of us jointly to help the organization win. And I enjoy the partnership of that, whether it's my peer group or my staff. And uh, I think these things don't happen, especially in software. Uh, these things don't happen without uh, relationships and people.
0: So that's the best part of the job of uh, people and the and the relationships. What's the most difficult part of your job?
1: I think the most difficult part is the impatience you have with knowing how it should work versus how it is today and the distance between here and there. And it, it's, you know, like at just to reflect on my prior employer, there were things that you when you showed up to work every day, things just worked. You know, I think with a lot of us at, at high growth tech companies, when you show up to work, you're like, man, why does this work? It should work. I know it can work. I know how it should work. And, and it, it just doesn't. And I think it's it's deeply unsatisfying to be confronted with what actually are pretty pedestrian problems in some respects that, that you want to fix. I don't really, you know, the substance of my job, I enjoy tremendously. Uh, the organizations within my remit, I enjoy tremendously. Uh, it's just that the the annoyance of knowing how it could be and <laughs> if we could just get there faster, right, uh, is is the only real frustrating part of the job.
0: Well, that's a great aspiration. So, Laura, I think we're ready for audience questions now. I see we have yeah. a few come in.
2: Yeah, we definitely had a few come in, um, but just before we launch into that, um, just really quickly uh, about Airbase, in case you don't know, um, we are a comprehensive spend management platform that combines three products into one system. So it's an all-inclusive accounts payable automation, software-enabled corporate cards, and a simplified employee expense reimbursements. And they all have approval workflows. It helps automate things better, provides real-time reporting for all of your non-payroll spend. So basically uh, we at Airbase wanna help your company control your spend from your seed stage through IPO. Um, So if you'd like to learn more, I'm just popping up a quick poll. We'd love to chat with you more if you're interested in learning a little bit more. Um, But yeah, back to you Jeff, audience questions.
0: Okay, so we have three questions from the audience so far. So other people who have questions, please post it in the Q&A section, Just turn it fourth. We'll take them in order. Robert McGill asks, what's the most important skill you developed to perform in the CFO role?
1: Yeah, I'll give you an answer uh, that is probably a little bit unexpected. Like I talked a lot about FP&A earlier, but I, I think the single uh, best skill that I've learned to be a CFO, or, or and I think it would serve me well in any role, honestly, is... And how to uh, care for and develop people, and I, you know, Jeff. One of the things that you and I have talked about is is that like there's no guidebook that says like this is how you become a CFO per se. And the way that I've always approached the problem is is that you recruit the absolutely the best people that you can find. And I, I really genuinely believe if I have one superpower, it is recruiting. Uh, I, I think I'm a very, very strong recruiter. And then once they're here, I spend a heck of a lot of time on their development, not just from the perspective of here's what you're doing, good and bad, but also in terms of here are the things that I would like to see that I know you want to work on to become a CFO in your own right or to be you know, whatever the role might be that they aspire to in their own right. And I, I think actually that's the single most important skill for any executive, not just the CFO.
0: That's a fascinating observation. Can you give an example of what kind of feedback you'd give to someone to say how they can specifically develop?
1: Yeah. So um, I think as you and I have talked about before, Jeff, like I spend a full one third of my time on personnel and, uh, you know, if you want to be sort of businessy about it, human capital management, you know, and um, the way that I think about it is, is that obviously it starts in the recruiting phase and, and getting great people, but once they're here I do uh basically three things one is is that every quarter i write up a formal email of like very specific feedback like here's sort of the general trajectory that i think you're on here are the things that i think you absolutely nailed it on and then here's some development areas that i want you to think about for the following period and it's interesting because the way twilio does it is every six months you're meant to provide formal performance feedback and for my folks it's never, ever a surprise because they do it every quarter formally and they have a written document that they can go back and look at. um, And I literally just like copy paste, that document when it comes to the performance email. So that's one. The second thing is, is that I think in the moment feedback does matter, you know, so if someone's nailed it, you know, in a, in a meeting or a presentation or with an analysis that I really go out of my way to make sure that they know it. And then if they haven't, then in a more discreet fashion, you know, I do take them to the side and and try to unpack, you know, what what went wrong? How could it have gone better? And versus just say, hey, I don't think you did a very good job. And it, it's more about, okay, here are the specific things that I think we could have unpacked to make this better. And then the third thing is, is that I do a one-on-one with every one of my staff members. I do them bi-weekly and it's their time. Um, so they bring whatever topics they want. If they want feedback during that session, I'm happy to give it. But I really view it as their time to surface their agenda, not my time to kind of needle that them on this, that, and the other.
0: Fascinating. Uh, let's turn to questions again. The next question from an anonymous questioner is: Was there a time when you had the imposter syndrome, and how did you work through
1: that? Yeah, I mean, you know, even today, I I, I feel it sometimes. I I think that, um, you know, you're you're. I think it's good to be paranoid. Let me start there. <laughs> like, I think there is benefit in not necessarily assuming that you know you have all the answers and um, that you've got it all figured out. And and so I think to some degree, you never want to lose total sight of that. I think when it feels a little bit overwhelming, I mean, you lean into the people that you either love or the people that you trust, and ideally those are the same. Sometimes um, and also your, your network. And so I spent a lot of time, as we talked about earlier, you know, talking to my peers, like, Hey, have you seen this before? Like, am I crazy? Like, have you done this? I mean, Jeff, you know, I mean, I've, I've asked a number of, I'm sure questions to you that you're like, really, is he really asking me this? And, you know, a lot of times it's just like for validation. Am am I like even thinking about this remotely the right way? Or, you know, in your case, I mean, you've seen so much and done so much that I just want to uh, graft your wisdom onto my brain. In many cases, and um, I think that's how you work through this. You just keep asking questions. You stay paranoid, and you stay hungry and intellectually curious about these things.
0: Well, it sounds like when you're asking questions, though, you don't. There's not an emotional component that you feel bad about asking the question. It sounds like you have enough confidence that, you know, you know a lot, but you don't know everything, and you might as well. It's it's a sign of strength to ask the questions. It's as supposed to a sign of weakness.
1: So I think that's right, and it's not to say that I'm not nervous about it sometimes. I mean, I am, and you know, you get goosebumps or or or, or butterflies or whatever. But uh, you know, you you work through techniques to get through that stuff, and you keep moving.
0: What what I would always do is I would write down all the questions I had, and I wouldn't ask them immediately. I would wait till the end of the week or the end of the month. And if I had twenty questions, I find that half the questions get answered just by being in the room with people, and something comes up without you asking it. And then the questions I had left, I would say, well, who's the person to answer that question? It wouldn't necessarily be my boss. It might be a colleague or even a subordinate. Uh, and so I, I think carefully about, I wanted to learn, but I think carefully about, because every time you ask a question, you're saying, you admit admitting you don't understand it. You don't want to go through every day saying, I don't understand anything. <laughs> so that's not good either. So there's some sort of balance there, of how, how you want to handle it. Next question from Cherry Meow. Uh, how do you think about surfacing the right metrics at the executive team level, the balance between the most important metrics and more in detail and balancing the forest for the trees?
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, it's that's a little bit trickier. What I would say is, is that there are certain things in an executive setting that you really want the team to focus on. Um, And so what I try to do in our executive team meetings is ensure that those three to five metrics we pay very close attention to. And sometimes they're input metrics, sometimes they're output metrics, but I'll I'll, I'll be specific and give you the the example in our case. We look very, very closely at um, how the sales team is performing and how they're doing on the closure of deals in a quarter, because obviously that leads to what our, you know, medium and long-term forecasts are going to end up being around our overall business performance. We look very, very closely at contraction and expansion on our accounts, and we spend a lot of time unpacking them at as low a level of detail as we can so that we understand revenue performance and fundamentally our customers, do they like us? Are they growing with us? You know, do they want to keep using more of us? We actually focus less on cost um, than than folks might think. I think for us, we know how to manage cost. It, it, we can control it if we really needed to, and and we've kind of managed it at a point where you know we're more or less you know kind of in a break even, a slight loss zone, nothing crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And then we also focus on gross margin, and we spent time evaluating you know product mix and things like that. So I would say those are the metrics that get surfaced at kind of the top now. In our company-wide uh, meetings, uh, we'll do deeper dives in, in some of these areas. So, to use maybe a more specific example, um, in our messaging business, you know, everyone will come with fluency around the things that I just said. And so, rather than further unpack those, what we'll get into is okay, what's what are the usage metrics? You know, beyond revenue, like what's actually happening on the platform, or if we introduce a new feature. What's the adoption rate on on that particular feature, and you know how is that going? Or if it's an HR conversation, um, you know how are we performing and things like DEI, for example. What does the hiring pipeline look like? What does attrition look like? Um, we just kind of unpack it deeper and deeper based on uh, the the setting, but otherwise, I'd say we really try to keep it to three to five and really really focus the team on that. Otherwise, it just becomes overwhelming.
0: Well, it sounds like you feel you need to be uh, experienced and adept at every level, the high level plus the detail level, but that depending on who you're talking to, what the problem is, what the group is, you're focusing on various, on different things. If you're, if you're, if they are if you have a detailed problem you're solving, you're at the detail level. If you're at a board meeting, you're, you're at the high level and it depends on the context.
1: I think that's uh, a good way to say it, yeah.
0: There's a, a Darren uh, is another GE CFO alumnus, and he's asking, he's now a CFO of a technology company. He's asking, what are your best practices for managing technology funding opportunities and making choices? And I'm not actually sure what technology funding opportunities means, whether it's how do you decide, for instance, how much to spend on R&D or one, a given technology internally versus another technology internally, but uh, I might want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, I guess the way that we think about it is, you know, when when it comes to the next dollar of spend, the the first question that we're always asking is, is that do we put it against go to market, or do we put it against product. And there's a there's a it seems alluring to put it into go to market in many ways, because the payback of a go to market dollar is very, very easily understood. And we can basically model it immediately in terms of the revenue that we're going to get out of it, what the payback period is going to be, and how that's going to contribute to the growth rate. And so that's pretty straightforward. And we do some of that decision framing um, just as a matter of you know, how do we continue to create oxygen for the company so that we can reinvest that growth. The flip side is what are these more longer term decisions is how I would characterize it. And you know, we tend to use relatively simple frameworks around, first of all, let's dissect the engineering spend. Is it going towards paying down some technical debt that we already have on an existing product? Is it going towards just keeping, you know, the service running basically so that it's one of these necessary spends that just has to happen because the scale of the product is increased to a level with our customers that without it, we couldn't continue scaling with customers or is it truly new innovation? My suspicion is, is that the question's more geared towards that third category. Um, but in our world, we try to satisfy those first two categories first, because obviously if customers start walking out the door, like that's not a very good thing. Um, but in that third category, we essentially look at it as a kind of a high risk, high reward dynamic. And I mean, if it's low risk and high reward, of course, we're gonna put every dollar we can into it. If it's high risk and high reward, then we're going to be more measured but we'll allocate dollars on sort of a graduated basis. And then once we see takeoff velocity, we'll start to put more money in it. And if it doesn't fit one of those two categories, we don't spend much time on it. Or what we'll do is is we'll deliberately label it as this is something we're investing money in that is not revenue generating most likely for any foreseeable period. And so let's know that as a management team and know then why we're doing it if it's not going to generate revenue dollars down the road. And there are examples like that. I I point to some in AI and ML, for example, where you don't really know today. Um, You have some vague indication of how it might translate to revenue down the road, but you know it sure is important. Um, And so we do some of that too. So one of the takeaways I have is if you break down a big project to smaller
0: projects and you don't authorize the entire amount all up front, you you do it in, in gates and you say, well, okay, we'll give you some amount, go off, spend that money, come back, tell us how you're doing, and you may decide to give them the next round or not. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Kunjan asks, what's your litmus test for spend decisions around your approval authority?
1: You know, I try to take the approval authority uh, pretty high up. I mean, I, here again, I mean, I think it's uh, trust the team sort of dynamic um, unless. unless I mean, honestly, Kunjin, like in my case, like unless the board would say I have to be the one that signs off on it, I'd really rather prefer not to, not because I'm trying to absolve myself of some responsibility, but it's more because I want to drive ownership with senior leader. I mean, I've senior vice presidents on my team. I want to make sure that they feel the ownership and accountability of the decisions that they're making and that they properly interrogate things too. And so I'd really rather prefer that decisions stop at that level before they make it to me. Now, You know, one of the ones that does tend to make it to me because it's a multi hundred million dollar decision would be uh, like our AWS spend, for example. And that one, in fact, we require CEO sign off on too. obviously M&A transactions, uh, any of those would require my approval, even if they're below the board threshold. Uh, But otherwise, I try to push it out as much as possible.
0: We have a question from a recent college grad. Uh, Now that the GE internal audit program has changed, uh, is there another... If, if you were advising a young college grad for to ca- get the kind of experience you had at someplace other than GE, do you happen to know of any other companies that would have a similar program or any great experience for early pe- people early in their career?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think. I mean, I was lucky, obviously, and I had this very structured path through GE. I mean, I think there are other ways, obviously, to to create experiences like that. I think um, if you if you talk about companies specifically, I mean, I'd say the consulting companies are are excellent at this. Um, you know, they have very programmatic ways of, of of training people. I think the investment banks, it's a more uh, particular skill set, but I think they're very good at this as well. If you look at uh, corporates um, outside of technology, uh, Pepsi and and Ford and Coke are, are have historically been known as being very good at this. Uh, within technology, I would say um, Microsoft is excellent. Uh, Amazon, uh, which more or less copied their playbook from GE is very, very good at it as, as well. Uh, so I think you have a number of good firms that you can, you can learn from, but, and then obviously you can go to business school and things like that too. But I, I'd say the biggest thing is just like absorb as much information as you can and read everything.
0: When you think about these, what I call academy companies that you were describing, would you include Twilio on the list or is your aspiration to have Twilio be the place where people in their finance career could come to get that kind of training?
1: That is absolutely one of my aspirations. I actually say inside the company quite a lot that it is my goal for within the company, because I don't want to send the, too many people out, but it's, it's my goal within the company that our organization, not just finance, but my organization writ large, is sought out as being the talent magnet to seed the rest of the company singularly. And uh, if we can do that for other companies at some point down the road, so be it.
0: We have time for one last question. Uh, if you were to write a chief financial officer playbook, What's one thing CFOs can do tomorrow morning to help their companies, their careers, or their lives?
1: <laughs> I, would, I would just go back to what I said around developing people. You know, the, the, in software companies, these are people businesses, and you cannot achieve anything without your team. And I think invest deeply in you, you personally recruiting individuals. I never outsource that to the TA team. I go after people myself and once they're here, the job isn't over. It's uh, continuing to invest in them over very long periods of time, and I think it reaps benefits because they're much more highly motivated to do great work, and they're much more highly motivated to stay.
0: And if I remember what you said before, you spend a third of your time on people leadership questions, which is absolutely pretty big. Absolutely. Out time allocation. Well, Kazama, thank you very much for sharing your experience and your ideas here. It's been a terrific conversation. Thank you to Airbase for hosting us Laura, do you have any closing comments on behalf of Airbase? No, yeah, thanks kidding. to you as
1: well, by the way. You, you've been a great host, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know I've learned so much from you, too, and I appreciate all your mentorship.
0: Well, it's uh, been a great relationship. Thank you.
2: Yeah, no, thanks to everybody for joining, um, and hopefully we'll see you uh, at another Path to Becoming a CFO. Have a great day, everybody.
1: Thanks, Laura. Thanks to the Airbase team. Take care.